0: Well, Welcome again to City Life. It's beautiful outside. We set a nice atmosphere here, in here in worship. Uh, but I'm not going to throw stats on top of what Nate said or, or confirm or deny the stat he threw out. But I will say they're talking about inviting people. And if you weren't here last week, the testimony that Drew shared about forgiveness, as we talked about forgiveness, was remarkable for about a dozen different ways. But something I'll never forget about that story is after he realized his need for Christ... He just kind of throws it in there. He's like, my neighbor had been inviting me to church for like 10 months, and I finally went to him. He sought him out, and that's how he got rooted in a church. So you never know. You might invite somebody to Easter. They'll say no. They won't show up, but you never know what God is doing in their life. You never know what the Holy Spirit is doing in their life. So that's, I would just encourage you in that. Keep inviting. Don't get discouraged because you keep sowing. The Holy Spirit is doing work that we will never see, and we get to just be a part of it. We get to rally around Easter because, like Nate said in the stats, you know, like people will come more likely around Easter. But we are starting a series tonight that is going to work our way towards Easter. But before we jump into it tonight, I wanted to give a shout out. It's kind of a bittersweet night tonight because I don't know if you guys know, but the birches, they sit in the back right there. They are moving next month. In about a month, they're moving to Boone, North Carolina. They posted a picture of their house I had to rebuke the envy in my heart. It's a beautiful house out there in Boone, uh, not too far from me if you want to visit. And, and Paul was talking up the guest room. Paul was talking up about, you know, just the room they have for people. But I want to give Paul a shout out because they were part of the Newport News Campus for years, and then we planted down here a few years ago, and Paul has been a part of it. Stephanie's been a part of it. They've been a part of leadership. But Paul, he's back here playing the drums. I can think of when we were setting up the sound and the snake and all these wires. He was here with Tyler. For hours on end doing all that. They labor behind the scenes. They toil behind the scenes. And then Paul gets up here and plays the drums. And uh, tonight was his last night playing with us. So I want to give him a shout out. I want to give you all a gift card. Because we love you guys. And uh, y'all can go see a movie together. I will say, my brother went to college near Boone. And y'all are 30 minutes from Boone. I don't know if there's any Regals real close to that house down there. She might have to use it in the next month. So, <laughs> right, or you just have to come back. Nate's trying to prophesy that over your life, but we're excited for them and what God is going to do for them over there. Uh, So just give them a hug over the next month or so. Tell them thank you over the next month or so. Buy them dinner over the next month or so. And then, hey, if they need some people to lift heavy stuff out of their house, we got you. (laughs) But we are starting a series tonight, and it's called Previews, hence the Regal gift card. And uh, we're going to be in tonight, Mark chapter 8, verses 13. 31, all the way into chapter 9, verse 10. So if you turn to Mark chapter 8, verse 31, I'm going to meet you there in a couple seconds. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in your pews. Maybe you got the U version at, but we're going to be in Mark 8, verse 31. Let me make sure I'm there because I'm going to be reading it. But we're going to be looking tonight at the transfiguration. It's this wild account in the middle of three of the Gospels, Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9, where we see Jesus Christ transfigured on this mountaintop. And we're going to look at it, but we're also going to look at how it points to Easter and how it points to you and me here tonight. And as we live our lives day by day, kind of how, how, this is probably a terrible analogy, Captain Marvel, right, is setting the stage for the Avengers. I'm going to go see that for the sole reason it's setting the stage for the Avengers. The transfiguration sets the stage for Easter, and that's such a poor analogy. We're just going to jump right into Scripture. I'm going to redeem myself. (laughs) But take a deep breath because we're going to read a a pretty decent portion here. We're starting in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. My, My heading says, Jesus predicts his death says, then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. And as he talked about this openly with the disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. There's things I want to hear from God right uh, Well done, good and faithful servant. That's probably top of the list. This is probably at the bottom. Get away from me, Satan. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples. So he's calling in the crowd to hear what he has to say. So it's important. He says, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but you lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your own soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus went on to say, I tell you the truth. Some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God arrive in great power. Seems like a a weird statement, but then you keep reading. It says, six days later. Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, Rabbi, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He said this because he didn't really know what else to say, for they were all terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my dearly loved son. Listen to him. Then suddenly, when they looked around, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus with them. As they went back down the mountain, he told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept it to themselves, but they often asked each other what he meant by rising from the dead. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this account in Scripture. God, we thank you for what it speaks to those disciples. We thank you for what it speaks to us. God, it's a powerful moment in Scripture, and I pray that tonight your Holy Spirit would use it to speak powerfully to us. God, we didn't end our worship with that last song. We worship you through your word right now, and we ask that you would do in our hearts and minds what needs to be done tonight. God, help us to be transformed into Jesus' image as he was transformed on that mountaintop. We ask this in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. So we're in this series previews, and part of that is because the summer blockbusters, they're coming. Uh, the, the, the big old summer movies. I didn't know until recently that, that the whole summer wave of movies started because movie theaters were one of the first places to get AC. I said that a couple weeks ago. I thought it was awesome trivia. Greg just looked at me and was like, yeah, I knew. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Greg was probably there when it happened. So <laughs> anybody, though, anybody have any movies you're uh, looking forward to this summer? All right, Greg and I have a, I love Greg. Greg loves me, all right? <laughs> that seems so, we love each other, all right? <laughs> anyway, have any movies you're looking forward to, though, this summer? Endgame, figured everybody's going to say that. Pikachu, thank you, thank you. Toy Story, see, now we're flowing. I knew Avengers was going to be the answer. Aladdin. Dumbo already came out, right? All right. I still haven't seen Captain Marvel. I got catching up to do. <laughs> Anybody else? Spider Man Far From Home, I didn't know that was coming out, but I'll see it. So, amidst all these blockbusters, right, actually, every single one we just listed, Avengers included, all these movies included, there will be fairy tales. Tales of imaginary, made up people in imaginary, made up lands, in most cases. And we'll eat them up because we love them. But this isn't anything new. Matter of fact, the author, theologian, and author Frederick Buechner said, as far as I know, there has never been an age that has not produced fairy tales. Fairy tales are all but universal because they scratch this itch that we're born with that, man, there's something we can't see. There's something more. Like Neo in the Matrix, you just got this feeling that there's something deeper that we aren't aware of. And it's because of, as we read in Ecclesiastes, right in the Bible in Ecclesiastes 3, that God has set eternity in our hearts. It's this scratch that we can't itch. It's this void that we can't fill outside of something eternal like God himself. And so these fairy tales that last age after age, they're these stories where where the author peels back the curtain, leads us into rabbit holes, through wardrobes, and it shows us that there's another world behind what we see. And of course, as adults, we try to say we're realists and we're all about real life and we're not about that. But every single one of us (laughs) said Avengers when I asked what movie you were looking forward to, right? Fairy tales graduate from age to age. They're not going anywhere. You know, another book that's not going anywhere is the Bible. Probably the most translated produced book in the history of mankind. And there are certainly blockbuster moments in Scripture. That's why there have been movies made out of the Exodus. Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. or or Noah and the ark, or Jesus and what we're going to celebrate at Easter, or just his life in general and the many miracles. And then the biggest miracle, his life, his death, and his resurrection. These are blockbuster moments in Scripture. But if we're not careful, because they're like this, they can drift towards fable and mythical status and become larger than life and disconnected from history. But we do well to remember that unlike fairy tales, that have also withstood the test of time. The Bible's not based on mythology. It's based on history. You know, it's, it's linked to Old Testament history, but, but truly, our history is human beings, and it impacts us today. But I think sometimes when we celebrate Easter, as we're about to next month, if we aren't careful, it can become larger than life, rather than something God wants to impact us today. It's not mythology. It's, it's history. Not just Jesus either, but from cover to cover. Our, our Bible is history. Even the Old Testament. You know, there's an author, Dave Harvey, who once said, the gospel is at the heart of the Bible. Everything in Scripture is either preparation for the gospel, presentation of the gospel, or participation in the gospel. And this is a fill-in-the-blank statement that you could fill in the blank with Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is at the heart of Scripture. The work that Jesus did at the cross and, and, and through the empty grave Everything in Scripture is either preparation for that, a presentation of that, or or we are participating in the salvation and the call that comes from that. You know, we learn about so many, quote-unquote, heroes of the Bible in Sunday school. And there are heroic people in the Bible, but they all truly are just previews that point to, prophetically, the one hero in Scripture. The one hero we need, Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 45, it's talking about Jesus and his first disciples. Philip found Nathanael... And told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. And about whom the prophets also wrote, pointing to the Old Testament. We found Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He's like, you you heard all these previews about the Messiah. We found a showing. We found in flesh and blood, Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Nazareth. Then you look at a verse like Luke 24, 27. Towards the end of the gospel accounts. After Jesus' death and resurrection. There are these disciples, they're shook because they don't understand how the Messiah would have died how that would have been any part of him ushering in his kingdom. But Jesus comes up alongside them on the road, unbeknownst to them. They didn't recognize him. Maybe they didn't see him. I don't know. But he comes up to them in Luke 24, as we're going to look at in a bit. And it says, Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, all the Old Testament, the Bible they had, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He's saying, look, this entire book you have, the word of God, it's all preparation for this that we're walking in right now, this moment, for me, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. But man, if you want to talk about larger-than-life fairy tales or things that seem like larger-than-life fairy tales in the Gospels, the transfiguration qualifies like a few other accounts that the disciples give us. Because Jesus essentially goes on a hike with three of his choice disciples. And as he's praying, he begins glowing inexplicably. And then two dead guys show up. Start talking to him. Peter doesn't know what to do, so he starts saying awkward things. He's interrupted by a voice from the heavens, presumably Jesus' father, God the father, because it calls him his son. And then after that, Jesus is left without the dead guys. They go down the hill. He swears him not to talk about it. Boom. You got the transfiguration. It's so wild that there are people that study scripture, that wrestle with it. And some of them, they get off on tangents. They're like, well, this is a scholarly, non-historic account that the disciples wrote so that we would know that Jesus is the Messiah. Others are like, well, this is like a dream that either Peter or Jesus had, like an ecstasy that they had, this vision of Jesus as the Messiah. Even others are like, well, this is probably an account of the risen Jesus Christ after he died and was rose from the grave, and it's just somehow slid into the middle of not just one but three Gospels. Why would they wrestle so much with it? Because it's, it's wild. It's a, it's a wild story. And when we give it a name, right, the transfiguration we don't have to say what it is, an inexplicably wild event on the top of a mountain, right? It's, and, and if we think, and if we subscribe like many do, that this is, this is Jesus revealing his divinity to the disciples, you might say, okay, it's supernatural. It's inexplicable. We're not, not going to understand it. God does wild and crazy things that, that, that are bigger than us. And if we think that, then maybe we would say, okay, doesn't surprise me, doesn't really merit further thought. But I would ask tonight, and I would assert tonight, that what if it's more than a glimpse of another reality? What if it also speaks to our present reality here tonight? And what if it's not just a one-time presentation of Christ's divinity, but it's a presentation of Christ that we're supposed to participate in today, now, this week? So context, though. We spent so much time in that myth-busting series. Context, content. Context for this passage. They're on the mountains. So in Scripture... Mountains are a traditional place for special revelation, for God to reveal his glory. It's like the wardrobe or the rabbit hole or what is it it—the express in Harry Potter? Hogwarts Express, right? Yeah, where it takes you to another world. The mountains in Scripture, it's like where God peels back realities, where he reveals himself in Exodus. It's where he reveals himself to Elijah. And it's where he reveals himself here to the disciples. And these aren't, again, made-up mountains, I got a buddy that just went to the Middle East and was, was hiking these mountains. Like, this, he's, his mind was blown. He's like, this is the mountain in Scripture where God revealed himself to this person or that person. These are real mountains. You can go hike. I never have. <laughs> but one of my favorite mountains to ever go to, it's, it's in the Dominican Republic. Maybe more of a hill. But you're up in some elevation in La Guasra where we go every year. Uh, and I've gone maybe six now. We go to this village. We've got an agreement. We're sowing into that village. But you get there. It's beautiful. I remember most, I love it because most teams get there at night, like 10 p.m., all the kids are out there ready to, you know, meet you, but it's dark. And you go right to bed. But then you wake up that next morning and your mind's blown because just what you see from that view, it's amazing. And I love, I love that view because it's quiet. You're unplugged from distraction there, right? There's not a whole lot of technology. The cell phone signal is spotty. You're just there. Your pace has changed. Your perspective has changed. I was telling the team last weekend as we prepared for the trip, shameless plug, we got one spot left if you're looking to go. But we're preparing for the trip. And I was telling them, look, you want to shoot adrenaline into your walk. You want to get out of a rut in your walk. Man, nothing changes your perspective like a change in pace or a change in place where you just break from your routine and and you shift, your perspective Shift So much happens when we go there in one week. I, I tell people, people tell me afterwards, we get more out of it than the village ever does. But I say all that because this is what Jesus is doing with his three disciples. I think sometimes we forget that Jesus was fully human. Right? He was tired. This is a man whose ministry, you read scriptures, it was like it was 24-7. Yeah, 25-7. Yeah, that would be accurate too. 24-7. And that's why you see in scriptures, there's times where he would pull away to pray. He would pull away to get alone because like us, he needs those times for just a break from the madness. This guy had thousands of people following him for ministry to interact with him at every moment. He was fully human. I don't know. Maybe Jesus was an introvert. To recharge, he needed to go be by himself. We don't know. But just that reminder, he was fully human. And in this time of prayer, he's revealed in his glory. And there with him is Moses and Elijah. Maybe that seems random. Why Moses and Elijah? But it's significant. Like if you're reading the account of of the transfiguration in Matthew, and you just go to the beginning of Matthew, you take one turn of your Bible to the left. You'll be in Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets. And his last words, some of the last words we get in the Old Testament before 400 years of prophetic silence He says this in Malachi chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. He says, for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness, speaking to the coming Messiah, will rise with healing in his wings. And you will go free, leaping with joy like calves led out to pasture. He goes on to say, remember to obey the law of Moses, my servant. All the decrees and regulations that I gave him on Mount Sinai for all Israel. He goes on to say, look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Some of the last words that the Israelite nation were left with. That's the last words they had, right? They don't have the gospels yet, we do. <laughs> but Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, they come along Jesus on the top of this mountain and kind of create like a salvation history summit conference, whatever you want to call it. But they're up there on the mountain with Jesus. And if I can go Bible nerd with you for a second, the Jewish people refer to the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible. The Bible that they had is the Tanakh. And the Bible is made up for them for three different sections. You got the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, the Nevi'im, the prophets, and then the Ketuvim. I had to look up the pronunciations for those. That's the writings, right? Psalms, uh, some of the wisdom literature. So they had the, the, the first five books, the prophets, and the writings is what they called it. So the word Tanakh, it's a combination of all three. Ta for the Torah, Na for Nevi'im, k- for the Ketuvim. And Jewish rabbis taught that when the Messiah would come, all three parts of Scripture would testify to him. So I love that God, he only says but so many words. It only took probably for a second for him to say this. But he intentionally pulled Hebrew phrases from all three sections of Hebrew Scripture. He says, this is my son, which points to Psalms 2-7. Right? He says, whom I delight in or love, which is from Isaiah 42, 7, which is the prophets. And then listen to him, which is from Deuteronomy 18, 15, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. God is stating to the disciples present, look, this, this is your Messiah. All scripture you have points to him. It's it's preparation for this moment where I'm presenting, he's presenting yourself himself to you. The time has come. The kingdom of heaven is here. And when the cloud overtook the disciples and the Lord speaks the cloud goes away who's left just Jesus Moses and Elijah disappear Jesus had said in Matthew 5:17 don't think i came to abolish the law and the prophets rather i have come to fulfill them here on this mountain we see this visually as Moses and Elijah they leave and Jesus is left alone as the fulfillment you know the transfiguration is again this reminder that all of scripture is a preparation for Jesus a presentation of Jesus, or our participation with him. And then, again, when the, the cloud overtook the disciples, what's God's statement? What does he tell them? Listen to him. Listen to him. You know, it would have made a lot more sense for him to say, look at him, because he, one, looked pretty cool, right? He's got these, these robes on him that are so white, like, you see the, the, the gospel authors struggling to even describe how white and bright and glowing they were. And then listen to him is awkward because Jesus doesn't say anything. <laughs> I'm listening to crickets here, right? Listen to what? But in all three accounts, Matthew 17, Mark's, Mark 9, Luke 9, before they take this trip up the mountain, Jesus' conversation with his disciples is what we just read. It's about his suffering. It's about his death. And in all three accounts, after the transfiguration, they go back down the mountain. There's a little account. And then he tells them again, he's going to suffer. He's going to die. And in all three accounts, it's like the disciples, they don't, they don't really hear him. Like your kids, when you're asking them to obey, they hear you, but they don't really hear you. They don't heed you, right? They don't truly listen. God is saying, listen to him. Like we read the first account. Jesus says it to Peter, and Peter's like, he rebukes, reprimands Jesus. Not good practice, right? Reprimanding the son of God. And then again, fam- Jesus famously tells him, look, get behind me, <laughs> Satan. Calls him Satan. God tells him to listen. And on the way down from the transfiguration in Mark nine ten. It says they were still asking questions about what Jesus meant when it said he was going to rise from the dead. They still didn't understand the suffering and the death that was going to come for Jesus Christ. Again, all of Scripture was pointing towards the cross and the grave. Jesus, again and again, pointed and predicted the cross and his suffering and his death and his resurrection. We, too, are called to listen, to take heed, because the transfiguration You know, as we prepare to celebrate Easter, it's also a preview of the crucifixion. That might seem odd because it's an odd coupling the the glory and the suffering. The suffering and the glory. You know, because Jesus suffered and died, many of his disciples were so shook after his death that they doubted whether he was even the Messiah or not. But the transfiguration shows us that his coming suffering is not incompatible with his glory. The suffering and the glory are actually intertwined. Like, consider the following. The glory at the transfiguration was a private epiphany, but the crucifixion would be a public spectacle. Surrounded by two prophets at the transfiguration, Jesus would be surrounded by two thieves at the crucifixion. At the transfiguration, three male disciples, they witness his glory at close range. And at the crucifixion, three female disciples witness his death from afar. God's voice affirms Jesus as the son of God at the transfiguration, while one of the executioners, a Roman centurion, acclaims that he's the son of God at the crucifixion. At the transfiguration, his garments glisten in glory, and at the crucifixion, his garments would be taken from him and gambled for. At the crucifixion, people would hear Jesus crying out to God and mistakenly think, oh, he's calling, he's calling out to Elijah. At the transfiguration, he's present. We see both accounts, his glory and his suffering. There's, there's parallels. There's intertwined themes. You see, what the disciples see on the mountain is a glimpse of Christ's glory. And what they got on either side of that mountain was a reminder that Christ was going to suffer. There was a reminder of Christ's suffering. They didn't set up those tents or tabernacles or memorials or, or, or things that Peter wanted to set up on that mountain. They reentered their every day. The splendor fades. The Bible heroes disappear. The voice from heaven goes away. And I share this because we have this inclination to cling to mountaintop experiences, to seek to continually relive them. And by all means, we're called to rejoice in those moments and enjoy those sacred moments of worship where God speaks to us, or or we're in his presence, or we feel his glory, but then we're to proceed, trusting that he'll do it again, perhaps in a different time and in a different way. We follow Jesus up the proverbial, metaphorical, worshipful mountain for this experience of being with him and hearing him and seeing his glory. But this is inevitably always followed by going back down the mountain into the valley where life is lived. And guess what? Jesus is there too. I'm not saying we leave God's presence. No, Jesus is there too with us, smack dab in the middle of life's ups and downs every season and circumstance of life. I share this because the transfiguration reminds us that our present sufferings, our chronic pain, that doesn't cancel God's glory. Similarly, the transfiguration teaches us that worship and the pursuit of God's glory, it's not a retreat from the world rather to retreat into his presence so we can go back into the world with his love and with his grace. But if we were to talk openly about our lives, so much of our Monday through Friday doesn't feel like a fairy tale. It's not unusual, seemingly significant, or seeming life-changing. But the Bible, the cross, God's grace, even though they can seem larger than life, they speak to our present reality. And I don't think we would say that that the Bible, we would never call the Bible a fairy tale. or We wouldn't say that it's, it's separate from our reality, but sometimes we live like it. The, we think of the spiritual side of life as the, the breathtaking moments of worship, the supernatural, the miracles. But then, quote-unquote, real life is God just help me get through today. Help me get through my Monday. Help me get through my Wednesday. But I would tell you when we live with a, a disconnect like that, we disconnect ourselves from what God wants to do. We become like the disciples on the road to Emmaus, again, at the end of Luke, who we're wrestling with scripture. Jesus pulls up, starts talking to them for what had to have been miles because he goes through the Old Testament, the whole Bible they had, and they didn't realize it was him. How long do you go without reflecting on the fact that Jesus is risen, God is with you, and the Holy Spirit's in you? Hours? Weeks? Days? Jesus' death and resurrection it should shake our understanding of our present reality. You know, the series we're gonna start. On Easter weekend is kind of a a myth-busting series simply on salvation. There's a Dallas Willard quote. He used to say eternal life is now in session. Heaven now, heaven forever. It should invade our present reality and we think about Easter speaking to this but the transfiguration also speaks to this. The transfiguration isn't just about Jesus's divinity although it is and it isn't just about the foreshadowing of his death and resurrection although it is. It's also about you and me. The suffering we're going to walk through in this life And the glories that we're going to experience in this life and the next. You know, in all three accounts, again, Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9, the trip up the mountain is prefigured by Jesus' conversation with his disciples about his suffering and death. But he doesn't stop there. In each of the three accounts, Jesus says, look, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me in the gospel will save it. And then from here in each account, it jumps to Jesus, whether it says six days or or after a time, Jesus climbs the mountain to transfiguration. I'm getting somewhere. Why, Why am I sharing all this? Because, again, we all want those mountaintop moments. We want to see God's glory. We sing songs like the old Jesus culture song, show me your glory, which points back to Exodus where Moses asked God to see his glory on that mountaintop. The transfiguration reminds us that we don't have to wait until heaven. The miracles, the empty grave, all that we celebrate at Easter is not detached from our reality. Eternal life begins now. And I would say that your transfiguration begins now. Maybe you think my transfiguration, I'm going to start glowing. God's going to start talking to me from the sky. What are you talking about? You know, if you read Romans 12, maybe you're familiar with this passage. Maybe you've never heard it before in your life. But it's quoted often in church. Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. In the NIV it says, therefore I urge you. Brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. It's easy to just read that verse and not think, okay, what is a offering my body as a living sacrifice? What's that look like? I'm building a fire here. What's going on? What does that look like? I love the message version. It says, take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. And then it says in verse 2 in the NIV, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And what's remarkable is the same word that's used for transfigured with Jesus in Mark is rendered transformed in Romans 12. The same word is used for Christ's transfiguration and the transformation that God wants to do in our lives. We're transfigured in this call to take up our cross and follow, to be living sacrifice. But you know, I don't think taking up our cross has the same weight as when Jesus said it to the people in that Roman culture. Like we think of the cross, we think of Jesus, our salvation, right? God's grace, the grace that flows from the cross, his glory, all things we should think of thanks to Easter. But you take somebody from, from first century B.C. Roman Empire, you, you put them in a, a time travel machine and, and I think of, you drive down Taylor Road near my house, sorry, This is a total rabbit trail. But you drive down Taylor Road, where my house is, there's a church on the right, and there is a cross that has to be 15 to 20 feet high. It's white. It's painted. It's on this probably 10-foot mound on top of all that, and they light it up at night. So anytime I'm going to anywhere late at night getting groceries, whatever, there's a a, a white cross just glowing on my right, right? Now, for us, it's like, that's awesome. You take somebody from first-century Roman culture, and they see that, they're like, that's morbid. Like... (laughs) Who is trying to intimidate who? Who's threatening who? Like who is saying, oh, you could be on that, right? Because in their culture, that's death, that's torture. That's an instrument of pain. And again, praise God due to Easter, it's become a symbol of the gospel of grace and his glory. But again, we want the glory. We want the mountaintop experiences. But Jesus gives us instructions before he climbs up on his mountain of transfiguration for how we climb our mount of transfiguration. Take up your cross. But again, I think we can become detached with just how much the New Testament talks about death, not just death in general. Jesus' death and resurrection, how we're supposed to partake in it. I would say that the key to your transfiguration is a bunch of deaths and resurrections along the way. Dying to yourself again and again daily, dying to pride, dying to greed, dying to lust dying to selfishness. All these little things every day, we're we're being transformed to look more and more like Christ. That's how we take up our cross, deny ourselves and take up our cross. But the problem for so many of us is we want the transformation without the pain. Now, physically, I think we get this, right? Like, if if I want to lose weight, I got to die to donuts. I got to die to Coke. I got to die to the fact that I eat healthy till about nine o'clock and then the clock strikes nine and I want to touch, eat anything I can touch, regardless of how healthy it is. Like you gotta quit those habits. And some of those might even be painful. But we're familiar with the phrase no pain, no gain. All right? I'm on, <laughs> I'm on the other side of the spectrum where when Steph was in the hospital, I wasn't going to the gym, so I lost some muscle mass. So I'm trying to get it back. Nate just looked up, if you wanna get some muscle mass, he's been lifting with guys on Saturday mornings. They know if you want the hashtag gains or whatever, there's pain. You're literally tearing your muscles apart. I was at the gym on Tuesday, and I did more ab work than I have in years. And so for days, I sneeze, it hurts. I look, turn to look at Raj, it hurts. So two days later, Thursday, I've just given Raj his bath. It's, you know, tradition every night. I give Raj his bath. Then I rub him in cocoa butter because, God forbid, my boy's going to be ashy. He's beautiful. So he, he <laughs> Steph's always like, that's too much. I'm like, no, you just wait. He's going to be so moist. He's going to smell great. And then after that, he always gets up, and he hugs me. And so that night, like, I'm on my knees, and you wouldn't think that a 30-pound toddler could just fold me like a napkin. But he takes, like, maybe the momentum of two or three steps and hits me to hug me. And I just feel shooting pain all down my my stomach. And I I wince, whimper, and fall to the ground. He folded me like a lawn chair. And it's because that exercise had tore me up. Not tore up like I had a six-pack. Tore up like my muscles were not shredded again in a good way, but just torn up. I felt pain as a 30-pound toddler came to give me a hug, and I fell over on the ground shouting, and all he did was laugh because he's Raj. Where am I going with all this? Oh, no pain, no gain. We realize, look, if I want to gain or be transformed, whether it's adding weight or losing weight, there's going to be pain. We get that physically. But then spiritually, we we want the glorification and the transformation and the life Christ promises and the life abundant. But we want to do it without any of the pain of self-denial, of sacrificing, making painful changes in our lives. We totally compartmentalize the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ into its own realm. Down some rabbit hole or through some wardrobe where it doesn't have anything to do with us and the way we live our lives today. Where God is still asking us to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. And maybe somebody would say, well, he did that so we don't have to. And that's true when you talk about God's wrath and his judgment. He took our sins so we don't have to take the penalty of our sins. But I also say, you think you can look more and more like Christ and be like Christ without experiencing some of what he experienced? Even when he explicitly told his followers, look, you're my disciple. Look, all these things they did to me, some of it's probably going to happen to you too because you're following me. See, the transfiguration didn't eliminate the coming suffering. And our transfiguration, our transformation, all but requires it. It's powerful how many times in scripture you read about the trials and the suffering, but what it does to shape us. Paul says in Romans 8, I love this verse, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That word in is powerful, because if it's the glory that's revealed to us, Oh, no, it's the glory over there. It's the glory of heaven. It's the glory of God. It's the glory of the risen Jesus or the glory of Moses and Elijah. No, the glory that's going to be revealed in us. We're going to be glorified. It says in Romans 8, we're stripped of sin, stripped of pain, resurrected into eternal life. And our sufferings can't compare to that glory. See, the transfiguration is not just some detached story about Jesus's divinity, nor is it just a foreshadowing of the death and resurrection that would happen at the cross. It's about you and me. Not to make the Bible about you and me, but it speaks to you and me, our suffering and our glory. One day we won't just behold the transfigured Christ, we'll be transfigured with him. Our slowly increasing transformation in this life will have an explosive consummation. C.S. Lewis once said, the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to. Don't look around. The dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you will be strongly tempted to worship. We're called as we follow Christ to make that that one day that he talks about more and more today, to be transformed. We're going to be transformed and transfigured and glorified, but we can take steps towards that, looking more like Christ today. Not so that people will be tempted to worship us, as he jokes in this quote, but so that people will be drawn to worship Jesus Christ. We're called to be previews of Jesus Christ. We're called to be presentations of Jesus Christ, what his heart is. What he, obey, what he commands and how we obey, right, it's, it's, it's walking in Jesus' footsteps and showing people what Jesus is like. We're called to be previews, presentations, and we're called to participate in his mission, the mission he gives us. Again, all of the Old Testament serves as preparation. In the transfiguration, in the greater context of the gospels, we see the presentation of Jesus Christ. But we're called to participate. And some of this participation is our transfiguration, dying a thousand little deaths day by day taking your everyday ordinary life you're sleeping eating going to work and walking around life and placing it before God as an offering not conforming to the patterns of this world but being transformed being transfigured by the renewing of your mind if I could have the worship team come up i want to close with that word renew cuz it talks about being transfigured same word that we see at the transfiguration how does it happen by the renewing of our mind What does that word renew mean? Renew means to bring back to life. What does renewal require? Death. You can't experience renewal unless something dies. Spiritual renewal is simply this, death and resurrection daily. You want transfiguration, transformation. You want renewal. You have to die to your ego. Die to your laziness, die to your bad habits, die to your pride, die to your selfishness, die to whatever that thing is the Holy Spirit will put his finger on this morning and say, this has to change for you to look more like Jesus. We die to ourselves and take up our cross by being obedient in those moments. And if you're willing to die daily, you can be renewed and transformed in ways that you didn't even imagine possible starting today. Where God invades your reality, where eternity is now in session, the kingdom is here. The transfiguration revealed this to the disciples and maybe not forget that. That all that we're about to celebrate at Easter is not some fairy tale disconnected from our reality. No, it speaks to our reality. Our every day, our, our, our case of the Mondays, our hump day. No, God, Jesus risen, the Holy Spirit with us wants to infiltrate those moments with eternity. So I would just ask as we step into worship, we get prepared to worship again, and as we're in God's presence... Ask God. Ask the Holy Spirit. Lay your finger on it. What needs to die? Maybe you already know. Maybe it's glaringly apparent. You've been wrestling with it for years. Maybe it's something that the Holy Spirit will lay on your heart as you worship. But I would tell you, man, half the time we're waiting on renewal, God's waiting on something for us to let go of, to let die first. We're called to be transformed, transfigured into the the image of Christ. It's part of our calling as Christians, little Christ, to look more like him. How would God ask you to do that tonight? But let's stand and let's worship. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for your word. That even wild, inexplicable uh, passages like the transfiguration, they speak to our now. They speak to tonight. And God, we don't seek to make scripture about us. We know that this is about your divinity. It's pointing forward towards Easter. But we know that tonight you love us. You care about us. Those things we've been wrestling with that, that, as Steph said, would maybe make us think, I don't want to get into God's presence. No, you want us to come to you with them, God, so that we can lay them down at your feet and you can embrace us again. God, I pray that you would use this text tonight to shift our hearts, our perspectives, and to make us look more like Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in his name as we worship.